Chapter 32 of Paul, a Herald of the Cross. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Russell Newton. Paul, a Herald of the Cross by Florence M. Kingsley. Chapter 32 A Stranger in Athens. It was high noon in Athens. The wonderful water clock, which stood in the midst of the Agora, declared it. So did the unerring finger of the sundial, which the builders and makers of the clock had discreetly placed on the outside of the beautiful little structure which enshrined the mechanism, either by way of providing against possible errors in the timepiece, or to prove to the doubtful-minded the perfection of their handiwork. It being the proper and natural time to eat, Athens was hungry. The fruiterers were doing a driving business, slices of cool melon and clusters of early grapes being in especially brisk demand. Before the stalls of the fleshers and pastry cooks, an impatient crowd was waiting, while even the humble dispensers of plain barley cakes, three for a farthing, emptied their flat baskets once and again. A young man, who wore his red cap very much on one side and carried a kithera slung over his shoulder by a leathern strap, had eaten exactly nine of these cakes, besides a slice of lemon. It appeared, however, that he was still hungry, for he shook his head ruefully as he fingered his lean purse. A pest on my importunate belly he muttered with a frown. What then? I have no money, it appears, therefore I have no provender. But stay, there is more than one road to Rome. He strode across to a flesher's stall, whereon were displayed in tempting profusion roast fowls, great joints of beef and mutton, cutlets of veal and pork, heaps of succulent and dewy salads interspersed with steaming bowls of soup thickened with vegetables. The greedy crowd, it is true, had wrought great havoc in this noble array of victuals, but there was still enough left to make a hungry man's mouth water. "'Look you, my good Simon,' quoth the man in the kithra, fixing his bold black eyes upon the merchant. "'Onesimus the bard is assuredly not unknown to thee. Many a bowl of pottage have I eaten at thy stall. Today I would also eat, for alas, the memory of yesterday's dinner serves but to whet today's appetite. But with a purse as empty as his belly, my excellent flesher, a man must needs bestir himself.' If music failed to bring the silver, brawn and muscle must come into play. Give me a bowl of our soup there, which will go to waste perchance if I eat it not, and in return take my kithra till this evening, when I shall redeem it. The instrument is worth thy whole stack of victuals and a broad piece besides. Tis bound with wrought silver, mark you. The flesher, who was after the manner of his craft a fat, red-faced man, merely grunted by way of reply. He reached out his hand for the kithra, which his would-be customer readily passed over to him. Humph! he ejaculated, running his greasy fingers over the strings. "'Tis not Athenian-made, plainly enough, yet the tone is not bad." He lifted the instrument and scanned it more closely. "'Colossae!' he exclaimed, pursing up his lips. "'Now, how might you have come by this, my young sir?' Onesimus flushed a deep, angry crimson over all his face and neck. "'Give me back by Kithra,' he said in a low tone, eyeing the flesher fiercely. Not so fast, not so fast, my good fellow. There can be no harm in asking a civil question, nor yet in answering the same. Take the soup. Fetch me a penny at sunset, and thou shalt have thy kithra, not a whit the worse for my keeping. He laid the instrument aside with an air of decision, and arose to wait upon another customer, who unquestionably had money to spend, as the cheerful jingle of coin in his wallet bore witness. Onesimus stood for a moment as if undecided, then drawing a bowl of the pottage towards him with somewhat sullen air, he emptied it in a trice. "'I will return at sunset,' he said shortly, turning on his heel. 
"'As you like,' replied the flesher indifferently. "'A pretty instrument that, good sir,' he added, addressing his latest customer, who had glanced after the retreating figure of the musician with a faint show of interest. "'If yonder knave return not, I shall lose nothing by the transaction, which indeed was none of my choosing.' Being presently left to himself, the excellent Simon allowed his eye to wander idly to the glittering heights of the Acropolis, which towered in majestic grandeur high above the great irregular square of the marketplace. The white wonder of the Parthenon was a familiar enough sight to the worthy flesher, who indeed had been born under its shadow. He yawned wide as he looked, and reaching out for the kithra, proceeded to strum upon it unmelodiously. Onesimus, in the meantime, was striding moodily along the busy street between the long walls which led down to the Piraeus. "'If I can but get a couple of hours' work at unlading,' he muttered, looking anxiously at the clustered galleys which dotted the placid waters of the harbour. "'If I cannot, what then? I am at all events no longer a slave.' He threw back his head and laughed aloud, a harsh, unmirthful laugh which caused more than one pair of eyes to follow him. "'Yonder knave hath a merry heart, it would seem,' observed one enviously. "'He is mad, perchance,' said another, who knew the world. The object of their surmises still pursued his way and the unhappy tenor of his thoughts. No longer a slave to one master, but a slave to a thousand necessities, anxieties, pains, fears, and forebodings. A wretched fugitive without a friend, without a home, without a god.' by which it may be seen that one Onesimus had also been diligently studying the gloomy page of worldly experience, and that he had found little comfort therein. He had reached the water's edge by this time, but instead of pressing forward into the busy throng about the wharves, he leaned up against a pile of newly unladen merchandise and continued to stare moodily at the incoming and outgoing vessels. He was partly aroused from his abstraction by some words which were being spoken at his side in a deep, resonant voice. I have no further need of your good offices, my friends. Return ye therefore to Berea, and bear my request to Silas and Timotheus, my fellow laborers, that they come to me with all possible speed. I will await them here. Onesimus turned and fixed his eyes upon the three men who had paused near his side. They had evidently just landed from the vessel yonder and were strangers in the city. Moved by a sudden impulse, he started forward and bowed low before them, doffing his red cap respectfully. You are newly arrived in Athens, noble sirs? Yes? Is it so? You'll perhaps have need of a guide to show you lodgings, shops, markets. Also it may be the wondrous sights of the city. Shall not Onesimus offer you his services, to whom Athens is as a tale that is told? There is no one better, I assure you, my lords. The man who had first spoken regarded him keenly for a full moment before replying. He was a small man, somewhat bent over as if from age or infirmity, the impression of age being still further confirmed by the fact that the fringe of his curling hair which mingled with his abundant beard was thickly sprinkled with white. The gray eyes beneath the bushy eyebrows were steady and kind, and the whole expression of the face genial and winning. Onesimus involuntarily repeated his obeisance, although he had not failed to remark the fact that the stranger was wrapped from the searching sea wind in an ample cloak or dreadnought which had unquestionably seen long and hard service. "'So thou didst not remain in Antioch,' said the stranger quietly. Onesimus started violently. "'In Antioch?' he stammered, reddening. "'Where? How? Didst thou not fetch me in thy boat up to the Orontes some eight years ago?' "'Truly I did,' said Onesimus, hanging his head as he recalled his last meeting with the man. "'I heard thee speak in the street Singon,' he added 
But I was not of those who threw stones and sticks because of what thou didst say. I left Antioch that same day because, well, because of my affairs. Yet I can show thee Athens as well as another. Stand thou here till I shall speak with my companions, said the stranger authoritatively. Thou shalt show me lodgings presently, and I will pay thee a penny for thy pains. Half an hour later, the strangely assorted pair walked slowly up the long street which led from the Piraeus to the city of Athens. There be lodgings near the shore, Onesimus remarked, pointing to a labyrinth of narrow streets which hemmed in the busy quarters of the shipping merchants. Cheap lodgings, he added, with a sly glance at the well-worn garments of his companion. The heavy cloak had been removed now, and its owner carried it upon his arm. I shall require cheap lodgings, he said tranquilly, but I will go into the city. Onesimus observed that he breathed heavily as they climbed the long ascent, and that his thin face had grown quite pallid. I will carry the cloak, he said bluntly. Thou art perhaps ill. I have been ill, said the stranger, but thanks be to God I am recovered. Which God? cried Onesimus, sneering openly. Tis easier, they say, to meet with a God than a man in Athens, yet can I thank neither God nor man for anything? I may starve, die, rot, and if my carcass be thrust from out the walls before it plague the nostrils of my fellows, there is no one to waste so much as a thought upon me. If thou hast so learned this present world, my son, said his companion, laying a gentle hand upon his arm, thou hast done well, and thou wilt happily pay the more diligent heed to what I shall say to thee concerning the God which is above all gods, the only wise God, eternal, immortal, invisible. To whom perhaps this altar was erected in times past, observed Onesimus with a bitter laugh. The two paused before an ancient shrine built of rough, undressed stones, above which, in characters but dimly discernible, ran the inscription, To an unknown God. Unknown, but not unknowable, thanks be to our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath revealed to us the unspeakable love of God through the power of his grace, murmured the stranger, bowing his head. The young man did not venture for a time to break the silence in which his companion wrapped himself as in a garment. Once only did the newcomer arouse himself from his seeming abstraction. It was when they entered the famous street of tripods, which sweeps boldly about the foot of the Acropolis, his eye kindled as they passed between the seemingly interminable lines of graceful statues which stood like sentinels guarding the shrines and temples of the Olympian deities. "'Are they not divinely beautiful?' cried Onesimus, his heart swelling with all the pride of his race. "'And look you, good sir, in the white temple yonder on the heights stands the Phidian palace, wrought from pure ivory and robed in virgin gold.' "'Idols all!' exclaimed the stranger in a tone which echoed strangely amid the classic haunts of immortal beauty. Idols all, and therefore accursed. Onesimus bit his lip. Not only a Jew, he muttered half scornfully, half pityingly, but a mad Jew. Neither spoke again till they reached a narrow and rather squalid street which lay near the river. Here dwell thy countrymen, good sir, said the Greek coldly. Yonder is their synagogue. Thou wilt doubtless find good accommodations hereabouts. He turned as if to go, but his companion detained him with the word. Stay, my friend, he said. There is somewhat that I owe thee, and proffered him a coin. Onesimus stared at it in silence for a moment, and then shook his head. No, he said decidedly. I want no pay for what I have done. Farewell. And before the other could speak again, he was gone. Within the space of three days, the agora was buzzing with a new bit of gossip. 
What of this Jew, this madman, this proclaimer of strange gods? His own countrymen will have none of him, they say they. Yet he stands yonder, haranguing the crowd with all the assurance of a philosopher. Such were some of the sayings concerning the shabby, insignificant, stoop-shoulder, hook-nosed Jew who had recently come to Athens. Certain of the learned professors, discoursers, lecturers, and philosophers who were wont to air their vapid learning in the Stoa shrugged their shoulders languidly at the mere mention of his name. Paulus, said they, we have heard somewhat of the man, a brawler, a barbarian Jew, akin to, or one with Christus, it matters not. Think you that he can have access to a secret hid from us? He writeth, doth he? Well, and he may write. Oh, the Jew findeth scholars, certain slaves, perchance. His doctrines could be held by no sane man. Look you, cried their rivals of the Epicurean school, be he barbarian Jew or Greek, some call him Roman, tis one to us. We will hear him of the matters whereof he babbles. There is no other breeze to stir the air today. So half in earnest, half in mockery, they led him up to the rock-hewn steps of the Areopagus. May we know, they said with thinly veiled derision, what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. Then Paul, standing upon the projecting platform which was known as the Stone of Impudence, upon which Socrates once made his defense, spoke thus to the assembly. Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are very religious. For as I passed through your city and beheld the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Him, therefore, whom ye worship, though ye know him not, declare I unto you. The God, who made the world and all things that are therein, being Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by the hands of men, as though he needed anything. For it is he that giveth unto every creature life and breath and all things. He made of one blood every nation of mankind, to dwell upon the face of the whole earth, and ordain to each the appointed seasons of their existence, and the bounds of their habitation. That they should seek God, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain of your own poets have said, we are also his offspring. Insomuch then, as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to suppose that that which is divine is like unto a thing of gold or silver or stone, fashioned by the art and imagination of man. Howbeit, those past times of ignorance God hath overlooked, but now commandeth he all men everywhere to repent, because he hath fixed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness, by that man whom he hath appointed, concerning whom he gave proof unto all, in that he raised him from the dead. Hear, hear, broke in a mocking voice. This unknown God is a marvel indeed. He can raise the dead. He will also overlook our ignorance. Let us worship and bow down before his shrine. A burst of derisive laughter greeted this saying. The assembly rose to its feet as one man. The hearing was at an end. Impudent barbarian, quoth a richly dressed Athenian, casting a look of withering scorn at the stranger. Look at him as he stands there. It is evident that he has more to say. But who would waste precious time in listening to such babbling? Come, let us descend to the Stoa. Apollonius will lecture there this morning. His companion regarded the speaker with cloudy brows. The man is no mere retailer of second-hand learning, as is Apollonius, he said at length decidedly. 
I shall question him further concerning this matter. We have not given him a fair hearing. The other threw back his head with a sneering laugh. Look you, my friend, he said with biting emphasis, yonder wench of a flower girl is like-minded with thyself. The bold hussy is talking with the fellow now. Go, join her by all means, and Athens shall know by nightfall that Dionysius, the Areopagite, and Demarius, the flower girl, are among the converts of the Jew. Dionysius did not reply. He was already making his way toward the stone of impudence. His companion looked after him with a shrug of the shoulders. It appears that there be fools even in Athens, he remarked with a grimace, which indeed was a true word. End of chapter 32